John. Now we look into the book of Acts. And at this point, um, now we get what, what, is, what is known as the 40 days. And if we will look at <clears throat> Acts 1. Who wrote, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. So he's going to say in verse 1, that, and he's talking to Theophilus, uh, another believer. And he says, The former treatise I have made, O Theophilus. What's the former treatise? The book of Luke. Absolutely. Okay. So in other words, Acts is like, is like chapter, this is like the big Luke 2, the book 2 of Luke. Okay, so we're just going to continue on now. <clears throat> the former treatise I made of all that Jesus began to do and teach until that day he was taken up. Verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, the death and resurrection, of, by many infallible proofs, having been seen of them forty days. Say that in different language. What's he trying to say there? Infallible proofs meaning what? It's a testimony of? Unrefutable testimony of the death and resurrection of the Savior. That's what this, that's what this is about. This is about witnessing that it was true. Because there were going to be, if, as you roll into the New Testament, you start running into all of these cases where they're trying to explain that he just he wasn't really resurrected. It didn't really happen. So he's going to try and prove that it is. Okay? I showed himself alive during the Passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Okay, now. We all know what happened during those 40 days, right? What happened during the 40, 40 days between the resurrection and the beginning of Acts 1 and Peter and silver and gold have I none in the Pentecost? What happened during those 40 days? Christ came several times. Huh? Christ came and talked. Okay, he came and talked. What did he talk about? Preaching the gospel. <laughs> where, do, where do we go to read about what he taught during the 40 days? No, my Book of Mormon. Oh, we ain't got it. <laughs> we ain't got it. And in fact, wouldn't this have been really great to have this? What did he teach the apostles for 40 days after the resurrection? What would a resurrected being teach these people that were getting ready to go and carry the gospel out? Wouldn't it be nice to have it written where we could read it and understand it? Where is it? What, the Doctrine and Covenants have some of it? The set the hang setup on, of hang the on church? To that idea. Okay. Hang on to that idea. Here is. So if we say to <laughs> if we're gonna say to our Christian brothers and sisters, so what did happen during the forty days? Remember that God is a spirit and he doesn't have a body. And so here he is running around with a body for 40 days teaching the disciples. Teaching them what? 
You wonder if he taught the same thing he taught to Joseph Smith? Hang on to that idea. Okay, I, I love where you guys are praying. Okay, let, let, I'll turn it over to St. Hugh Nibley, uh, the patron saint of BYU. And hang with me, this is a little bit heavier, but I want you to hear what he's saying because I think this is critical to what happens in the next couple of chapters here. The theme of the 40 days has always been a disturbing one in Christendom in general. For many scholars, the possibility of such an event, as is indicated, is not even to be discussed. For others, such things are tolerable only as myths. While some are frank enough to admit they simply don't like the story. It is astonishing how many writers on the resurrection pass by the 40-day interval in studied silence. Why wouldn't they like this? What's wrong with the 40 days? Proves them wrong. But they don't know what's, what happened. How would they know whether it proved them wrong or not? Well, there are actually theories on the advanced gospel teachings at the time. Okay, so there are some theories about what he taught. Why wouldn't they like this? They couldn't reinterpret it to match whatever they wanted it to say. Okay. Remember that Christendom did an interesting thing. It traded, where do you get your authority to preach if you're a, if you're a minister? Well, and, but the college, but you can be taught there. But where do you actually, where is the authority of God? It's, no, that's Catholic Church. Directly from what? Through what? The Word of God, meaning the Bible. If we have the Bible, we have the authority. It's, it's called Sola Scriptura. It is, if you have the Scriptures, you have the authority. That's why the authority has to be infallible. Infallible means you, the, it's literally true and there is nothing missing. See, through the restoration of the gospel, where do we get our authority? Directly from. And the, and the Catholic Church understands this a little bit better. It's going to come directly from to an apostle who received it from the hands of God. But if you're a Protestant and you broke away from Catholicism, where's your authority to preach? In the Word. So they refer to the Word, meaning... And that's why when we start talking about the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon was a threat to... Sola Scriptura. There's more scripture that is not contained in the Bible and that was threatening. There may be things that we don't know. It has to all be contained in the Bible. And it has to be very clear. You're fallen, you're saved by grace, and you're done. And so this, is, this was a massive threat. So to have 40 days of discussion and teaching that is not contained in sola scriptura in the word is a major problem. What else did he teach? Now we we know what he taught and we're going to get to that in the in the sec here. Uh, see that's the problems. What if he did? What if we got to that that uh, the, the council of Nice and, and, the, and the discussion about that and what if he did teach against the Trinity? Or what if there... Well, hold on. Let's just, let, I'll let Satan say In short, 
If anything like the great 40 days occurred, the enormous portent of it which Luke puts at the very root of Christian faith escapes the commentators who view it as odd and a rather interesting interlude. But admit that in the end we do not know what Christ did or said during the 40 days but can only conjecture. Oh, that's kind of disquieting. But it is remarkable, and, I, and this is kind of important. It is it, not, not remarkable. It is not remarkable, thank you. <laughs> it is not remarkable that nothing has come down to us from that wonderful time. Oh, it, but is it not? <laughs> but is it not remarkable that nothing has come to us down to us from that wonderful time? Isn't it amazing that when I ask you what was taught and the, you are Latter-day Saints with the restored gospel and are studying the gospel that you don't even know. It's interesting that nobody recorded it and that it hasn't been passed down because this is a critical stuff and we don't have it. If you piece together things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and so forth, it shows that what we call death orders and whatnot were taught. Hang, hang on. Hang on. That's where we're going. Okay? <laughs> Those early apocryphal writings which purport to tell the rest of the story, Qumran, Dead Sea Scrolls, um, uh, Nagamati texts, a bunch of them, uh, the early apocryphal writings which purport to tell the rest of the story may not be ignored by the serious student. All the 40-day teaching is described in those other writings as secret. Uh, delivered to a closed cult group. There was only a small group of uh, men and their wives that were taught this secret information that they weren't supposed to share with the public at large. That's the theme of all the apocryphal writings. That's a good cult. Yes, it was a good cult. Uh, and in fact, that's what, when you read through the New Testament, there's a group called the Gnostics, the Gnosis which means the unknown, that there was secret knowledge that was had by these brethren, and, and they knew it, but the, but the public at large did not have this secret <laughs> knowledge. Taught to the apostles and their wives. Why would it be given to them if it was supposed to say secret and would obviously be lost? Well, not lost, just not recorded. It was edited out, actually. The information was there, but that they didn't want to have it. Okay. Yeah. Well, and we're going to find. I will re I'll refer to it a little bit. Uh, there is in. Uh, if you look, and Hugh Nibley did a beautiful job looking at first century Christianity, and they would they had drawings of what was taught, and I started to post some of that, and I thought that might be offensive and make you kind of uncomfortable because you'd think that I was on an anti-Mormon website revealing temple stuff. Because it's pretty clear what it is that was being taught to this group. And why it is that it was not publicly announced to everybody else. Okay? Uh, that said, as the last and highest revelation, the teaching of the 40 days was taught secret and has not come down to us. Since Irenaeus, 200 years later, or 150 years, 
Churchmen have strenuously denied that there was ever a secret teaching or anything that really important that was ever been lost. Really, there wasn't. Don't worry about it. There was nothing in the 40 days except there's lots of teachings in the 40 days. And <coughs> but there's not supposed to be anything more. Uh, to profess otherwise would have been perilously close to an admission of bankruptcy. Yet Christian scholars do concede that the apostles had information we do not have. Allow the existence of an unwritten apostolic tradition in the church and grant that there was a policy of secrecy in the early church. You know it. That, that's, that's kind of where I'm going here. Plainly, things have been lost. And ultimately, what was it that was being taught during this period of time? The, the temple. And, and again, at another time, we could actually go through all, all of what Hugh Nibley has written as he put together from sources all over the place saying, yes, there was very much uh, temple teachings, uh, temple direction, um, and that, that's what it is that was not generally known and, and the same, for the same reason that we don't today. Publish as Latter-day Saints what, what we're doing in there because it's... Secret? No, it's sacred and it needs to be prepared for those that are spiritually prepared. Is it possible that there was divine purpose in that not being recorded? Is it possible it's divine Absolutely. As there is today, right? Because part of what we need to be able to go through, and maybe this is the best way to explain it. Um, <clears throat> if we go to... Let, let, let me just back up just a little bit. In the early, in the in this infancy of this moment, the Savior is about is being taken. They're being taught. Now you get this beginning church that's starting. This is the Church of Former Day Saints. We don't have a lot written about what happened in those, you know, AD thirty-five and AD forty and AD forty-five. We don't have that. But what we do hit, have is what happened in eighteen thirty and eighteen thirty-five. In 1838, we have a church in its infancy, and we have records and teachings and ability to look at what how God works with a church in its infancy. And the parallels between the church of former day and the church of latter day is strikingly powerful and the same. So let me just ask you: um, if you have, if, if in the church of the latter days. And the Lord says, I have to have a people that I can have send out to all the world and witness and teach and have an understanding of the gospel and understanding. How did he do it? Think about the steps. He, he, did, he organized the church. Well, that's wonderful. Now we're all, we've all been in the church for one day. <laughs> And we're, we're farmers and we're, we're steeped in the traditions of whatever church we came from. How do you prepare a people to go from zero to going out and preaching across the world the gospel? How do you do it? Line upon line. What are those lines? What's, what's, what are you going to need to do? Now, but maybe the best way to do this is if you start preparing for here comes the Kirtland Temple... Back up just a few years. How do you get a group of people ready to go through the Kirtland Temple experience? How are you going to do it? We start a priesthood. 
First of all, you're going to need to have the priesthood. Okay, now they got the priesthood. Now what? Okay, what are, what are the lines? Faith, baptism, repentance. How are they going to know that? <laughs> gospel principles. You're going to run them to the gospel essentials class. What did they call that back then? The school of the prophets. You've got to teach them. Yes, sir. How do you prepare? How do you prepare? So first of all, we're going to have the school of the prophets. And what are we going to teach in the school of prophets? Got all the principles. Faith, repentance. Let's tell you what faith is. Let's get them ready. Don't you think that's part of what the 40 days were? Teach and go over the training. Remember, Joseph Smith, three months before his death, uh, pulls in the apostles and pounds them and pounds them and pounds them. And, and they said, why won't you let us rest? And he says, because I am soon going to my rest. You must know these things and I'm rolling the kingdom off on their shoulders. And you must know. So they go to school of the prophets to teach them, prepare them, train them. Okay, now what? Now what do they need? The temple. And specifically, what do they need in the temple? Yes. An endowment of what? Power. Power. So that's why he's going to say uh, in 1833, this is DNC 95. Verily I say unto you, I gave unto you a commandment that you should build a house. Now, at this point, this is 1833, they have no tradition about the temple. They don't completely understand what the, the role of the temple. All he's saying is, you must build the house. You'll understand it later. I command you to build a house in which the house I design to endow those whom I have chosen with power from on high. For this is the promise of the Father unto you. Therefore I command you to do what? Tarry. Don't go anywhere yet. Build this house. And why would, they, why would he want them to tarry? So they could be taught. To build a solid foundation. To build, in where? Well, and in their hearts. Are these guys ready to go out and preach the gospel? Oh my gosh, no. What happens when we, we're supposed to go out and witness with power? What happens if we go out and witness without power? Oh man, we're in trouble. And so often that's happened. We go rolling out and we're going to teach the gospel and everything and we're missing the whole page. Okay? So he's got to have them ready. They're going to be endowed with power. And then he's going to say here, uh, I command you to tarry 
even as mine apostles in Jerusalem. They also were to tarry. Why? To be taught, number one, and power. They had not yet been endowed with power. They weren't commanded to build a temple. They had one. Even as kind of its apostate form. The, you know, the Holy of Holies was empty. The ark was gone. Herod was the main builder of this thing, but it was still enough of a temple. They didn't have to build a temple. But they did have to be taught, and they did have to be empowered before they were ready to roll. Okay? So that's what's about to happen in Acts 1, 2, and 3. You're about to watch. Here's an infant church doing the same thing that was done in jumping off yet. Don't go making impulsive things. Sometimes the most important thing we do is what we not do. And we don't want to wait on the Lord. We just want to go now. And he says, I need to prepare you. I need to fill you with the stuff that you need to know so that you can go forward. Yeah. You've mentioned this twice and I really don't know if it's from scripture. Or if it's from me. The apostles and their wives. Yes. Hold on. Most of the early Christian writings that Hugh Nibley researched when he talked about that 40-day period of time, and it, it's in reference to uh, what, what uh, an article that Hugh Nibley wrote called uh, Christian Envy of Temples and of Prayer Circles. And it always involved men and their wives. And the School of the Prophets was more men. Uh, but but, but watch, watch closely what happens here in this process of getting the saints ready to move forward. Um, so hold on, because the wives are going to become kind of important here, I think. In just a second. Um, now, so they're being taught. The one thing that we do have that came down here, and I just love this. Verse 6. They were all come together, the Savior's teaching them, and they asked of him, Lord, um, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? They still don't get it. They're still waiting to say, okay, the, the knowledge is great and fun, but when do the fireworks start? When are you going to throw the Romans out? And they still are holding on to the hope. And what he's going to say to them is, it's not for you to know, but here's what's about to happen, brethren and sister. <laughs> Ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you. It's about to happen. 
And ye shall be witnesses of me unto where? Now watch how he does this. Jerusalem and to Judea, Judea and to Samaria. Samaria, including so not just Judea here, but Samaria right here. And the uttermost part of the world. So you're going to be witnesses first here, then Samaria, or Judea, and Samaria. Now we're crossing over into Gentile world, but all parts of the world. In fact, it's believed that Thomas uh, ended up in like Iran and you know, and uh, Paul went as far as Spain. I mean, they're just like, your job is to be those witnesses to all parts of the world. That's how Israel will be redeemed. Not by me in power with a sword kicking out the Romans. Israel will be redeemed through your witnessing to the world. That's basically what he's saying. But you can't do that yet until you are in, prepared and endowed with power from on high. Okay? So, and then the Savior then leaves. <laughs> Up he goes. Make sure you witness to all the world. Bye-bye. See ya. And he's gone. And, and I love this moment and it's like the guy's just kind of watching. <laughs> and he's gone. He said, it's like, he'll be back couple thousand years from now because the angels are going to say why are you standing there <laughs> why are you standing there gazing well he said he was coming back no that's a long time go to work <laughs> okay now alright so if they're going to if they're going to go back to work the first thing that the quorum of the twelve need to do is to do what They need to get reorganized because they need, they need a quorum, right? And they are missing a member. So first thing they need to do is get back and add a new member to the quorum of the twelve. Okay? Yeah. Look who's part of... Look, look how they do this. And they were both... And, and when they were coming in, they went in into the upper room... There abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas, the brother of James. And they all continued in one prayer and supplication. Yes. Ah. How about that? Cool. With the women. With, I believe that's with their wives. Might, not necessarily, but... The women were involved. This is called a war council. <laughs> this is a state council. This is a, the, the, the women, whether it's their wives or whether it's the women leaders or whatever it is, are involved in this. And we're also going to include who? Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brethren and family. Okay, so what you really have is the infant church right here, and they're all going to be involved in this deliberation to do what? We need to find out who's going to be the next apostle so we can go forward. Okay, so we're now, so they're going to go through, and Peter's going to take control of this. They've got the names of the people that were possible were about 120. 
We've got to sort through 120 names. We're going to do a little vetting process. Anybody know? Let's talk about these names. Uh, I'm, uh, it's always fascinating to me that in High Council, uh, in, in Plano, when President Wilding says, we, we've had this name presented as a possibility to serve as whatever. Anybody know this person? Yeah. What can you tell us? Who knows them? Great. Let's have a discussion. Let's talk about it. Let's see if there's anything that we don't know. And we'll have a discussion. Great guy. Yep. Awesome. I can support that. Yep. Uh, but President, I've got some questions. I'll share that with you after or we can talk about it or something. Okay. We have these discussions. They're doing it with 120 people. We've got to come up with an apostle. Okay. Now, he's going to go through. We're needing to do this because, you know, Judas did this thing in his bowels gushed out and it was a feeling of Okay. <laughs> And they appointed, they got it down to two. Uh, Barsabas uh, and Matthias. Or Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou Lord which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether, whether of these two you've chosen. Which of these two should we go with? Now I, I know, kneeling in, in bishoprics and things like that, and you pray to know who should you have and what should we do, and then you kind of look up from praying and you look at each other and you kind of know there's a consensus. But it's fascinating that in this case, look at what they did. And you go, well, this is kind of weird. Okay? Uh, which one of these two people that take part of this ministry and apostleship for which Judas, by transgression, fell, and they gave forth their lots. So they cast lots. We're gonna roll. We're gonna roll the dice. We're gonna vote. We're gonna okay. Uh, if it's if it's if it's heads, it's Matthias. If it's tails, it's Barsabas. Okay. Or we're gonna cast lots, which really meant a lot of times it might be casting lots in the sense of pick the short straw. Now, does, isn't that a little odd? Doesn't that make? Can you picture them saying, "Well, we've lost one of the apostles," and present Monson's gonna say, "I'm down to two guys." Pick a straw. <laughs> Let's see what it is. Long straw gets to be the next apostle. A little weird? I think casting lots to me sounds more like voting. It's not as random as picking a straw. There was a certain amount. It tradi by tradition, there were times that casting lots meant we're going to take some sticks and we will throw them into the air and then it'll land and it'll point at them. It's like spinning the bottle. Who is it pointing at? Now, again, in our mind, we go, well, that's odd, except for you need to understand that the tradition was, if you're going to do something like roll the dice, pick the straw, how is that straw going to be chosen? By the Spirit. By the Spirit. Divinely, the Lord will guide who the lot falls upon. Now, give you an idea, this, this idea has lasted for a long <laughs> it's amazing the things that I put on here. We never quite get to. Okay. So here's the apostolic succession, which I love that picture, by the way. Oh, that's cool. Just online. Okay, cool. Okay. Now, let me give you an idea. Um, 
at, at Masada, uh, where, where we're going to be a year from now, <laughs> at Masada, what happened is, is that they got to a point where it's like the Romans are about to break in. We've been, the zealots are held up in Masada and they're about to be conquered. And they said, we'll never, Masada will not be taken. So re- we will die rather than we will uh, be submissive to the, the Romans. Okay, so what did they do? The group of men, first of all, that all men were then to kill their families. That left a small group, and their job, and then they drew lots, and the one on whom the lot fell was to kill the others, and then he was to commit suicide. We know that because there was a survivor who, who witnessed the whole thing. If suicide was a sin, let's not have everybody suicide. Let's just, we'll have one guy stuck with the sin. Okay? How did they decide who got to be the lucky one to kill the remaining guys? They drew lots. These lots. These are bits of a shard of pottery that was found. I've seen these shards. And they put them in there and, and, believe, and they believed divinely that the Lord would inspire the one that drew the... The, the winning lot or the losing lot depending that would kill the others and then kill himself okay because there was a sense this is how lots happen now let you know how far this this goes anybody know what those are <laughs> divining rods what's the idea behind a divining rod water it's a water finder it's a witching stick the idea is that when you get to water, what happens? It points down. Or in the case of this one, sometimes what will happen is that you hold, they're, they're bent like this and you hold them out. And then when you cross over to the place where the water is, what happens? They cross. This is where the river starts and then it makes part as you walk over here. And then when you find the other place where the water is, they, they cross again. They come together, which is what's going on there. It's that... There's, a, there's a, either a magic or an inspiration or something that's divining where the rods come together. Okay, And it still occurs today, right? Well, that's kind of odd, except for the fact in the Book of Mormon, we talk about the importance of holding to the rod. That the, law, the Lord is going to lead this rod in a place of inspiration. You're supposed to hold on to it. Now, do we have any other place where possibly two lots, two rods, may be separate and when, when at the right time they come together? Stick of Judah and Stick of Joseph. They come together under inspiration. Any other in the Book of Mormon? The Aliyah. These are lots. These are rods. These are they're, they're separate probably. The way we think it probably worked is that it's sitting there for unrighteous. The rods, the, the two spindles are separate. Then when it's time to go, what, what are the rods going to do? Align to the place where you're going to find what? In the desert. Water. If you're going to make this pathway, this... Leahona led them to places called wadis, 
of where the water exists, and they're going to go from water hole to water hole on their way down the Arabian Peninsula, most likely. But it's still the idea of a divine rod, it's casting lots. And in the Book of Mormon, we have one other case that we know of, of casting lots, and that was Nephi and the brethren. How do we know who gets to be the lucky Joe that gets to go in and explain to Laban we need the plates? We're going to cast lots. We're going to take sticks or we either throw them up in the air and land, we don't know exactly how they did it, or we're going to draw the short straw or the long straw. And guess what? The, the straw, the lot, fell on who? The eldest brother. God leads the casting of lots, inspires the lots. Okay? So what you're talking about here, when we're talking about the calling of, of a new apostle, we're talking about a well-known, established, the casting of lots, directed by God to, to point to the right person. This isn't random. It's not odds. It, it is, it's just true. And it's what they understood. It was the language that they would have understood. Exactly. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So now we're going to. So now we're constituted. Now we have the quorum, the twelve. I love this. This is Pentecost, <laughs> uh, according to the, the authors, uh, those that have drawn over time. There was a little more bizarre pictures uh, that I could have used. Uh, let's go to let's go to Acts two. Okay, so that so as per instruction, rather than immediately go off in opposite directions, they tarried. They waited in Jerusalem for a moment that they would be endowed with power. That moment that would come together is at the coming together of Pentecost. Pentecost meaning. 50 days after Passover. And it's sometimes I've got the explanation up there uh, from uh, Exodus. Uh, Thou shalt observe what uh, the Lord called the Feast of Weeks. Five weeks. Of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. I kind of like that. That if this, if, if this outpouring of the Spirit was going to come at Pentecost, it comes at the... First fruits of the wheat harvest. Meaning that the, the, these first disciples that were going to hear the gospel and accept, they were actually the first fruits. <laughs> that the wheat was being collected. Okay, so it's the, they are the first fruits. I, I like that a lot. The day of Pentecost was fully come. They were of one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them. And this is the, this is the one that has driven Christian writers nuts and artists struggle with this. There appeared unto them what? Cloven, cloven tongues. Mm -hmm. What would it clothing Cloven tongue? What does that mean? Especially if I give you the Greek thing above it. Cloven means split or dividing. Why? 
cloven tongue. Do you think there was really like little fiery things above their heads? No. What would a cloven tongue be? Speaking in tongues. There was a speaking in tongues. Why are we calling it? Because we're going to see that, that they're going to speak in tongue and meaning different languages, not bizarre languages, not babbling, but specific languages. Why would it be a cloven tongue? Well, I was just thinking the reference to like as fire. Fire has the splitting of, and dividing. Okay. And the spirit was descending upon them, and maybe that's what it looked like. Okay. I like that. Some understood and some didn't. This would be a dividing, wouldn't it? That some are going to understand and some are not. Well, and there's references in the scriptures, uh, Dr. Thomas, where he talks about his, uh, how his power would divide asunder. There you go. His word is like a, 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 a two-edged two sword, right? And it divides, divides asunder. And what does it divide? The righteous. Those that will listen and those that won't. Those that will be blessed and those that will be condemned. The preaching of the gospel is like that. It is a dividing, clovening effect on people. And it comes with fire. It does consume. It does. And at the very least, it fills us Remember the the, uh, the disciples on their way to Emmaus going, after the Savior leaves, they go, whoa, didn't our heart burn within us? That that places that fire in our heart. Uh, the fire in our bones, so to speak. Also purifies. And then it purifies. That This is the baptism of fire, and it comes by a cloven, fiery language to our hearts. Okay? Does that, does that make sense? See kind of the symbolism behind this? That just reminded me, my brother-in-law years ago said, whenever some new announcement comes in the church, it acts as a two-edged sword. And like, for instance, sometimes some people used to say, well, when the blacks receive the priesthood, then I'll believe the church is true. Right. Well, it did, and they didn't. And it even caused some members to leave the church when we switched to the three-hour block of time. There was another part of people that thought, that's not right. We've been doing it this way for years. Now here's this little sweet video on temple garments that's going all over the place. Mm -hmm. And how many people are going to say, oh, uh, that, We shouldn't right. be talking about that. I don't think so. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's always dividing. It is. How about whenever we get like a, a new bishop or state president or new, new young women's president? A war divides. And we go, this isn't the way we've done it. That there is always a dividing and a testing that comes with truth. One cool thing, basic doctrine never changes. Methods change. Um, the way it's constituted changes. The way we, we do programs changes. Basic doctrine no, it doesn't. But but we get but but in the culture we get bound up in who's serving where or the way that we do things or this isn't this isn't the way to do things. I know sometimes in our ward council we've got we've gone well I think we're gonna do away with the ward dinner here and we're going to, and, there, and there are people going we've always done the ward dinner this way. You don't what? 
Church isn't true. Sure. When the when they came out and said that there were exceptions for abortion, such as yeah. rape, that yeah. has divided up sisters immensely. Um, I it see has. some sisters being very judgmental, saying you're supposed to go ahead and have the baby without doubt. And other sisters feel very strongly that uh, people should mm-hmm. be forced to um, procreate uh, babies of very violent hormones. Yeah, I know. I, I remember just kind of being so surprised. It's it just kind of this weird juxtaposition. Uh, my son and I were on Temple Square uh, the morning of the, the solemn assembly where we, where uh, President Hinckley was sustained as prophet. And, and, being, and sitting there waiting to get in. We weren't able to get in for that session. We got in for the afternoon session. But we were sitting in line in the old, on the, to get into the old tabernacle on Temple Square and sitting there getting a chance to vote uh, and sustain... President Hinckley. But we had just walked past abortion protesters that were attacking the church for being uh, pro-abortion. And, and, they're just like, and, and there's separation out between us and, and them because there is that exception by the church. Well, there, this, is the, this is that dividing. Yeah. Another way I've kind of looked at that, the quote when I've always thought it's many, you know, right. uh, is there Do you think sometimes the spirit then divides us from our ignorance, divides us? Do you think there's a possibility that sometimes the spirit divides our natural man from our spiritual self? And so we get a better understanding, but we have to be separated from our former understanding, from our former lives. Yeah. Yeah. It has been inspired by God. It's like right. God said it. And I just go with the flow. It's, it's funny you would say that. I was just visiting with my sons last night, and we were having this discussion that it seems to be, uh, whether it's uh, the role of women or, or whatever, that, that there is, especially in a in younger generation, looking at it and going, the brethren have said that. Uh, they're a little old, and, we're, and it's hard to tell whether this is policy or doctrine. So maybe we just kind of go with it. That's why maybe at some point they'll accept gay marriage. Maybe at some point they will. They will, and, and they're just saying, well, because that's what we've kind of seen sometimes. And you know, that's why you've got Elder Ballard going, we're old, but we know what we're doing. <laughs> we've got some experience. We've been around. We've seen everything. I, you know, I get that we're old, but we're kind of inspired. You know, knock it off. <laughs> Yeah, but we have to let the Spirit, we've got to let the Spirit um, divide that. That's why I love this idea of this dividing, this cloven tongue kind of thing. Yeah, Bonnie? If we in the church have a lot of preconceptions, temple garments, black seating priesthood, none of it was ever doctrine. We designed it in our minds and created it. We did. And we misunderstood what was, what was happening. So, 
this cloven tongue here, was it dividing the people in there or dividing them from the world? Say that again. Okay, so was this cloven tongue dividing the people within that room uh-huh. or from and? the ones who wanted to follow Christ or not, or was it dividing them from the world? Yes. <laughs> Doesn't that make sense? That when, when this happens, it was going to divide a certain amount of them that maybe couldn't understand this or didn't want to understand this. And it was also going to begin to separate them from the world because they were about to be given a divine charge to be the witnesses to all ends of the earth. And they got to be on board. Yeah. And, and maybe we're going to talk about this in a minute. But, uh, Probably not. I was, but. I was under the impression that the cloven tongues were also the setting loose of the tongues. Yes. Okay. So yeah. I'm just Good job. Okay. okay. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I, just want, I just want to do a fast parallel here. Okay, so I want to parallel this with what happened in Kirtland, by the way, because it gives us a chance to understand, again, having the, having the Latter-day Saint version of what happened with the former day saints gives us a little bit more detail as to what we're watching and what it looked like, okay? Uh, Brother George A. Smith and Rose, by the way, this was the, the dedicatory prayer uh, and the meetings in the Kirtland Temple happened in the morning and into the early afternoon. Then they finally get done, and all and all thousand go home. Which is after you know, if you've been to the Kirtland Temple, you have a hard time picturing a thousand people crammed in that thing. They were stacked on top of each other, and and Sidney Rigdon went on for two and a half hours. Okay, um, so how they got all, all that? Say, but anyway, they go home, and then they come back later that evening, and to have a sacrament meeting, and the uh, in the in the Kirtland Temple. They bring up the, the yoke-shaped sacrament table, which I just love the symbolism of that. It comes up at the bottom of the pulpit. Up comes this yoke-shaped thing. The sacrament is served to everybody there off of the yoke. And then this happens. This is in the evening of the day the temple was dedicated. George A. Smith arose, began to prophesy the Lord and prophet recorded when the noise was heard like the sound of rushing mighty wind which filled the temple and all the congregation simultaneously arose, being moved upon by an invisible power. By the way, when we went to the Kirtland Temple, and I said to, the, to our little guide, so tell us about the yoke thing. And Oh, I didn't realize that. What is that? I said, it's the Savior's yoke. And you take the yoke upon you when you take the sacrament. Oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> and you're the guide. Man, many began to speak in tongues and prophesy. Others saw glorious visions, and I beheld the temple was filled with angels, which fact I declared to the congregation. The people of the neighborhood came running together, hearing an unusual sound within, and seeing a bright light like a pillar of fire resting upon the temple, and were astonished at what was taking place. One little girl at one of the, the, the houses in, in Kirtland ran to her mom and she said, Mom, there are men with white uh, coats on top of the temple. And she ran out to see angels. And suddenly there was a sound of, from heaven as a rushing mighty wind and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues, and it rested on each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. <coughs> Pardon me? This is, a, this is from Acts 2. The, 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 these are the guys here at Pentecost. And there were dwelling in, at Jer Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. Why were they there? Feast of Weeks. Pentecost. They were there for that, specifically. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. Okay? And basically they're saying, these are fishermen. These are Galileans. These are, these are kind of uneducated folk. And they're talking to us in a variety of languages. Okay? Um, now, if we go back to... Uh, and I, I, you have to love this little interchange. By the way, do you want to know what the languages were that they were speaking? It's all there. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea. I mean, they just go on and on. Okay, look at 13. 13. These guys are coming together and they go, uh, these men are full of new wine. So I'm wondering, did they uh, divide people up and speak to them in their own language, or was everyone just hearing it in their own language? That's a good question. That is really a good question. I don't know whether someone started talking Persian and the Persians kind of gathered together or if they were just standing there and they heard these things speaking and, and the person right here is hearing uh, Italian and this one over here is hearing Greek and this one is hearing Persian. I don't know. That's a good question. That would be interesting. There have been cases in modern days where this has happened and the person... Yeah, so I, I could actually see that, which would make it even even weirder. But if you're hearing somebody else in another language, because your heart isn't ready to hear this, now it just sounds like they're babbling, right? And they're going to say, and others mocking, these men are full of new wine. And I love Peter's explanation on this. That's so great. Look at 15. These aren't drunken, as you suppose. It's only for the third hour of the day. <laughs> They're not drunk. It's early. <laughs> it's only 9 o'clock. It ain't time for them to be, you know, bar hopping yet. I guess that's them understanding. It's like, okay, that would be something they'd under... Oh, that's right. It is only 9 o'clock. We're not supposed to be drinking yet. <laughs> But then, but here is here is this Peter who is uh, this uneducated fisherman that has been maligned in a lot of places. He's gone through the forty-day uh, advanced leadership training course with the Savior. Now listen to him. Okay, here he's going to say, "Okay, I want to tell you what's going on. This is what was spoken of by Joel, and he starts to prophesy, and he's going to start teaching from the Scriptures." Uh, and he's going to go through. This is uh, from Joel. Uh, my spirit was going to be poured out. Uh, I'll show you wonders of heaven. Something. I mean, he's just he just quoting Joel. Wow, that's not too bad for this this uneducated fisherman. Uh, and then he's going to throw in here, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Here comes the witness. Jesus of Nazareth, a man of, a man approved of God. 
among you by miracles, you guys know his miracles, and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, ye yourselves also know. How many of you have seen Lazarus running around? Yeah, you know him. Jesus did that. And everybody knows a blind guy or a leprous guy. You guys all know these. Okay? Which ye yourselves also know. 24. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Then he's going to quote David. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Verse 27. I mean, this speech by Peter in this place is a coming out party. This is Peter being Peter, inspired by the Spirit, and you watch the mantle descend on a prophet. Filled with the Holy Ghost. Filled with power and his divine responsibility. And he preaches with power, and he quotes other prophets. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Like he will say in his own writings, we have not followed divine, uh, fables, cunningly designed fables. We know this is true and we saw him, we were with him. We've been talking to him for a month and a half. We're witnesses. It is true. And then he's going to quote David. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus who, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and the Messiah. 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 When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And he says, repent. Where is this taking place at? We're not exactly sure. I, susp I suspect it's at the temple probably on the porch of one of the, the temples there, because it says they had come to a place, but they at the Feast of Weeks they would have been coming to the temple. So more, most likely it's at the, on the porch of the temple. I guess. Then they that gladly received his word, not everybody, but the, the cloven tongues would have separated the, those that, whose hearts were ready from those whose hearts that weren't. That dividing comes. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them 3,000 souls. This is equivalent to the early days of the church when it was fledgling in New York, and they send the brethren out to try and find Zion and the Lamanites, and they happen to cross through Kirtland, and there's Sidney Rigdon, and the brethren, and they all accept it, and suddenly inside like three weeks, the size of the church doubles because of what, because they're all accepting the church in Kirtland, and why it is that Joseph will come out of New York to go to Kirtland, because half the church in three weeks now lives in Kirtland. <laughs> all at once, this 3,000 were added. And I tried to find in vain. I couldn't find it. I know that it's there. Uh, it, it reminds me of what the, the headline in the New York Times, the first week of July, 1844, announcing the, the death of Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet. And the headline was, Thus Endeth Mormonism. <laughs> Finally, we're going to rid ourselves of this Mormon pest. 
and this book which is a threat to the Bible. Thus endeth Mormonism. And I have to picture members of the Sanhedrin who went, we finally crucified him and things are finally getting back to normal. And then from outside the temple somewhere there's this noise going on and they go out and 3,000 people join this weird cult. That had to be just incredibly discouraging to the Sanhedrin. We thought, thus endeth Christianity. And now suddenly they're coming back with a vengeance. We can't get them to go away. Now, by the way, they also did one other thing here. Forty-four. All they that believed were together and had all things in common. So now immediately the outgrowth of all of this is that they begin to live the law of consecration. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread, praising God, having favor with them. Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So this massive, I mean, this is, this is the coming out party. This is Peter in power, filled with the Holy Ghost, and the dividing, and, and just watch this thing going. Then we get one more. We got just one. So, say that again. Yeah, how would they do this? They seem to be been inclined to do it automatically, right? I don't, it wouldn't take very long to actually kind of bring your stuff to a common place. And, and I think James was the bishop of Jerusalem. Yeah, oh, oh spiritually? You've got to pack up your stuff. Move it here. And be driven by a sense that says, we now want to be together all the time. We want to be close. Wow. And it did. It happened fast. Yeah. Oh, it did. Yeah, in practice, they but couldn't... The initial, was a very thing. Let's all be but isn't it interesting that there is a driving force in these new saints to say, we want to have all things in common. We want to live together. Remember that the, the, uh, in uh, Kirk... No, it was in... At the Benbow Farm in, in England. When Wilfred Woodruff went there, he, he baptized the family. They were the family. I mean, they just wanted to have everything together. Yeah. But in that time period, it would have been easier because they already were hard working in order to survive. Yeah. Well, and I would guess also, of that 3,000, probably poorer. Probably less richer, probably more poorer. They may not have had very much stuff. No, we wouldn't. You know, the Jews were the first Christians. And yeah, yeah, they would love that. <laughs> <laughs> but they were. You're right. The Jews were the first Christians. Yeah. So when you look at, I love what it says in Second Nephi, where it says, Thou fool, thou shalt say, A Bible, we have got a Bible, and we have no more need for a Bible. Have you ever taken a Bible? Save it with you, with the Jews. 
Yeah, this was for the cradle. This is okay. Real quickly, then let's let's uh, let's finish up over here. Now, <coughs> Acts three. <coughs> Peter and John they went up together in the temple. The hour of prayer being the ninth hour. A certain man lame. Uh, laid at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, still there, uh, to ask all of those that entered uh, and saw Peter and John. And, and now, this is a story we know well, but, I, but look at the elements here. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. Look on us. Part of what the church, I think, is trying to do and trying, kind of coming out of obscurity is we simply want people to come and see. Just look. There's nothing mysterious about the sacred garments that we wear that remind us of our covenants and our fidelity to God. And it's common. It's not as odd as you might think. Come and see. Just come and look. And then once... We have their attention then. And he, he gave me expected to receive something of them. Sometimes when people come to us, they don't know exactly what to expect. And then Peter's going to say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise and then he's going to do what? Take him by the hand and lift him up. Now, real quickly then. This is this is supposed to be us. Yeah. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? I mean, look at the steps here. We're supposed to say Okay, first of all, look on us. Please, please just take a look. Come and see. That is probably the most powerful um, invitation that we have to somebody outside the church. Come and see. Just come and look. I have no idea. The, the, the Meet the Mormons is just come and see. Just come and look. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We all do things like that. Okay, maybe not exactly like that. Okay. We are all candy bombers in our own way. That's the difference. Okay. It's interesting he specifies the right hand. I don't know. Yeah. He's going to... Okay, so he's going to say, silver and gold have I none, but... Now, this is, where I, this is kind of the point, I guess, that I would like to, to finish with. I think sometimes... Especially if we're going to have at moments of the church and we talk about talents and, and we talk about that somebody seems to be a good leader or they tend to be a good speaker or they're good with youth or they're good scriptorians or something. And we have this tendency to look at one another in the church and say, yeah, but I can't do it the way that they do it. And I can't do it. I don't have a whole lot to offer. I don't have much. What have I got to offer? If I invite somebody to the church, they might start asking me questions and I don't have the answers. 
I love that Peter is going to say, there's a lot of things I don't have silver and gold. There are a lot of things I don't have. But the phrase is, I don't have those things, but such as I have, whatever I have, I will give to you. And brothers and sisters, we have, if our hearts and desires are in that right place, we say, there's a lot of things I don't have, but whatever I have, such as I have, what little bit I have, I will give to you. And sometimes, I, I, I do remember, and I, I think I've mentioned this before, uh, is that I remember uh, tracting out a, a lady on my mission, and um, she was a very humble lady. She was kind of confused, but uh, she was listening to us, and again, her, she called for her, uh, her minister to come at a time when we were coming to visit. And so we walked in and he's sitting there and we're sitting there and, and we had our scripture sitting on the table and he had his scripture sitting on the table and we started to talk and we were having a nice discussion. And I don't remember which one of us said it first, but it was like a, a duel, you know. And, and, we each, and we both went for our scriptures at the same time. And we started this gunfight going back and forth and, and we're going back and forth and, and she's just watching this whole thing as we're going back and forth and, and, I'm, just, and I'm getting gunned down bad. You know, and my companion is like, whoa, this is kind of heavy. And I said, I got this. And he's just beating me up badly. I'm bleeding. You know, there's just, I ain't got enough. You know, and at one point she tries to jump in and she says, what about? And he says, don't worry, I got this. You know, and they're just going, you know, and at the end of this is like, okay, I, I've silenced these young idiots and I'm leaving. And he, off he goes and she goes and she turns to us and she says, can I give you guys a ride home? I know you rode your bikes over. And so, yeah, that would be great. So we piled our bikes, we tied our bikes to the back of her car and she drove us back to our apartment. Okay. And, and, and I just felt really kind of downfallen that she just beat us up bad. And we went back to her the next week, and it's one of those moments where you kind of expect to see the Book of Mormon hanging in the plastic wrap, hanging on the doorknob. And she let us in, and I said, well, you th after thinking about that, what do you think about the meeting, stuff like that? And she said, uh, I've decided to be baptized. <laughs> and I wanted to say, but he beat us up. <laughs> you know, he made us look foolish. And I said, uh, so what was the difference? And I said, you know, he made a lot of good arguments. And she said, you know what? The moment when I knew I, that I was supposed to be baptized is when he shushed me and told me to be quiet. He handled it. Oh. And she says, and, and the, word for word, she says, I realized at that moment how much you loved me, and he didn't. Because oh. I did. I really loved this lady. Great lady. Didn't have much in the way of gospel scriptural knowledge, but such as I had, I just gave her my love, and she and that's what she heard, that's what she accepted, and that's and we baptized her two weeks later. <laughs> we don't have much sometimes, but what we have is a simple, clear testimony. Maybe we don't have the sophistication to those that struggle uh, with those, for instance, in their family that have become disaffected from the church. And they, they looked at all these sophisticated arguments about the church and Joseph Smith and all that kind of stuff. And you, and you can try and get caught up in all of that. 
I believe that what you have is the simple ability to say, I don't know about all of that stuff, but what I know, I know. Such as I have. And it's not an emotional reaction that I'm having. It's a knowledge that lives inside my heart. I don't understand everything Joseph Smith did, but I know he was a prophet. Now that will divide them asunder. Some are going to be offended by that. But such as you have. You don't have to be a scriptural knowledge guru on the book of Abraham. But what you know, you know. And I think for those that are disaffected, some are going to hear that most won't. But I think you still share that look on me and see. Bear you my testimony. These are our, this is one of those moments when people say to us, do you guys believe in the New Testament? Yes, we believe we wrote it. This was our church. Do you believe in Peter? Yeah, we believe he was our first apostle. I thought that was the Catholics. Yeah, we have a dispute. But we believe that this is true. I bear you my testimony that you have a knowledge in you such as you have impart to those and be witnesses. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. Our dear Father in heaven, we're so grateful that we've been here this day to feel of thy spirit and to learn truth. Guide us in our lives and help us to share who we are, the little bit that we have. And as we do so, please strengthen us with the Spirit and send it to those and touch their hearts. We're thankful for the gospel and for the friendships that we have and the strength that it gives us. Please go with us today and throughout this week. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
Darn it. It's all there. 